0: We are, of course, studying the Gospel of Mark, and we have made our way to chapter 10. And chapter 10 is actually some teaching of Jesus. It's a bit odd that Mark talks a lot about Jesus' teaching, but does not share a lot of his actual teaching. More so than any other gospel, Mark leaves out the teaching of Jesus, but he tells us often that he was teaching. But now we've come to some teaching of Jesus in chapter 10 on a very important, and controversial topic. I attended a wedding yesterday afternoon, as did some of you. It was right here in this sanctuary. It had all of the usual things that we have come to expect of a wedding, though I'm confident every bride thinks her day is unique It brought together a bride and a groom who have been dating for a while, and they were now ready to pledge their love and life to one another. It brought their families together, not in the same kind of union, but brought the families together nevertheless. The ceremony itself included promises and pledges, vows pledged to one another about what each was promising to do in the future for the other. And that future was pledged to be until death do they part. It was sealed with rings, symbols of promises and pledges made. In fact, we wear these rings as married people to demonstrate not only to ourselves, but to everyone we meet that we are married, that we belong to someone, and therefore everyone else is off-limits. On the emotional side, there is love, of course, at a wedding ceremony, love sometimes demonstrated in laughter and sometimes demonstrated through tears. There is the gazing into each other's eyes, which we've come to expect. Joy is certainly to be found at a wedding celebration. That's one of the key words we would use to describe not only the ceremony, but of course, the day itself. This too is found in multiple ways, maybe the joy that you see on the groom's face when those back doors open and he sees his soon-to-be bride coming down in her wedding dress for the first time. That's why the bride wants everything to go perfectly. It's why they spend so much time in preparation for that day and, of course, so much money as well. Now, I didn't do the ceremony yesterday, Tim did, but the couples that I deal with, when I talk to them in premarital counseling, I always warn them that their wedding day may not in fact go as they had planned. There might be that something that goes wrong, in spite of all of the planning and in spite of all of the expense. And yet, I tell them not to worry about that because, after all, at the end of the day, they will be married whether everything went perfectly or not, and that was their goal in the first place. But more important is a reminder that the marriage itself might not go as planned. In fact, it's inevitable We have such high ideals on that wedding day, such great hopes and dreams for our future that all of those cannot possibly come to pass. And therefore, this idealistic view of life is inevitably going to come back to reality. Statistics continue to tell us that nearly half of all marriages end in divorce, and I realize that we can take issue with those statistics and how they are formulated, but the truth remains that the number of divorces, whatever it might be, is still way too large both in our culture and in the church. Now, I know many of you like to watch those seemingly endless variety of television shows that are all about designing something. It might be something a house, might be a renovation of a house, it might be the backyard or the front porch or the mailbox, I don't know what all they design, but there are shows that design all of these things. I want to talk to you about design this morning, but not of your house. I want to talk to you about marriage by design. We're going to do that from Mark chapter 10, the first 12 verses. Verse 1, and he, that's Jesus of course. in the house, the disciples asked Him again about this matter. And He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, as I said, this is a controversial topic then and now. And this particular episode in the life and ministry of Jesus begins with a controversial question. This question is posed by those opponents of Jesus whom we frequently see and hear arguing with Him, those men that we call the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders of the day who were both conservative in theology and committed in practice. And in response to this controversial question, Jesus is going to share with them marriage by design. Now, if you have a study Bible of some sort, you probably have a heading there. You do understand that those headings are not inspired. They are there for our benefit. It probably says something like mine does, teaching about divorce, which would lead us to believe that this is primarily a passage about divorce. I want to suggest to you that it is primarily a passage about marriage, Jesus talks far more about marriage here, though He is dealing with a question about divorce, and though He does acknowledge the existence of divorce, He is talking primarily about marriage by design. He is traveling by foot, of course, from Galilee to Judea, meaning He is going from north to south. If you've been with us, you know that he has already twice predicted that he is going to go to Jerusalem, and there he will be arrested and killed and ultimately rise again, and he will predict that one more time. And therefore, he is already on that journey. He is already on his way to what he knows to be his destiny when he gets to Jerusalem. But why does it say they went beyond the Jordan? Those of you who went to Israel with us will remember, and those of you who didn't will get tired of me saying that. But you will remember the geography there. You do not have to cross the Jordan to go from Galilee to Jerusalem. So why would Jesus go beyond the Jordan? Well, many scholars believe He did so to avoid the area of Samaria, Not that Jesus always avoided that area. We know that at least on one occasion, he intentionally went to Samaria because there was a woman there at the well whom he wanted to talk to. And in fact, her situation is very much akin to what we're talking about this morning. But in all likelihood, he took this direction because this was the normal route that Jews took from Galilee to Jerusalem, crossing over to the east side of the Jordan to an area known as Perea. And then when they got further south to Jericho, they would cross back over the Jordan and make the climb up to the capital. This east side of the Jordan, this area of Perea, is very important to our story, and I will come back to that in just a moment. And so the setting for this dialogue is somewhere along that route, though we do not know exactly where, when the Pharisees approached Jesus with this controversial question, They are clearly trying to trap Him, Mark makes that plain, and this is so often what they did. They are not usually looking for the answer to a question. They are not looking to learn from Jesus. They believe they already know the answers to these questions. They are simply trying to trap Jesus. They might have already known about His teaching. He's talked about this subject before. You can find it in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32 which, of course, is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so in, the, in the, this particular text, they ask the question in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, you understand that that question is one-sided in that culture. It says, can a man divorce his wife? It does not say the opposite. In that culture, women did not have nearly the options that a man had. There is some debate as to whether they could divorce at all. If they could divorce, and there is some evidence for the fact that they could get a divorce, but even if they could, it would have been very difficult and very rare. And so in that society, a woman was dependent upon a man, be it her father or her husband. But in our culture where we have equal access to divorce, the application is of course two-sided. Their question arises from an internal debate that they had among themselves as Pharisees over the interpretation of a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. In fact, so that we understand the context of their question, I want to read that passage, Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he, she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her... after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is the only Old Testament passage that deals at length with divorce. There are other passages that talk about it and mention it, but here is the only one that really deals with it in any kind of extended way. Now, there were basically two schools of thought within the Pharisees that were following two different rabbis whose names I will forego so as not to confuse you. So there's two groups. Both of these groups were interpreting Deuteronomy chapter 24 and specifically this phrase found some indecency in her, but they were interpreting it in two different ways. One group focused on the word indecency. And so they said if a man found indecency, that is some sort of sexual immorality with his wife, then he could divorce her. So they limited it to sexual immorality. By the way, I didn't even know you were studying in Sunday school this morning the story of David and Bathsheba. Perhaps I should read the Sunday school literature occasionally until John prayed that earlier. So it ties right in with what we're talking about this morning. So one school said it's for sexual immorality. The other school was much more liberal in their interpretation. They focused not on the word indecency, but they focused on the word some or any or anything. So they basically said a man could divorce his wife or anything. It didn't matter what it was that displeased him. If he was displeased, he could divorce his wife. And so there are actually cases, recorded cases, of a man divorcing his wife because she burned his supper. And of course, we don't want to go that far. Well, in Matthew's version of this event, the controversial question includes this statement at the end, for any reason. Mark doesn't include it. It's implied here, but Matthew adds, for any reason. We know it's implied because there was nobody in the first century teaching that divorce was off limits, period. Even the strictest of groups, the Essenes, who were found at Qumran, taught that you could, under certain circumstances, divorce. So Mark states that this question was posed as a test. This is a trap. Again, they were not genuinely seeking wisdom or answers. They already allowed for divorce and were intent on continuing that. Now I told you earlier that the region Perea, he crosses the Jordan, is important to this story. So why is it important? Well, that particular region on the other side of the Jordan was ruled by Herod Antipas. And we've been here before. Way back in Mark chapter 6, we were in this area, and we were with John the Baptist. Do you remember that? you remember what happened to John? John was arrested by Herod Antipas and ultimately beheaded. But why? What had John done to lead to his arrest and execution? And the answer is that he had questioned and declared Herod Antipas' marriage to Herodias unlawful. Because both of them had divorced their spouse in order to marry each other. And so he had declared openly and publicly that Herod and his wife were wrong in doing this. So perhaps now the Pharisees are raising this question in this particular region, hoping that Jesus will say something that Herod will hear about. And perhaps as he did to the forerunner, Herod will now arrest and ultimately kill Jesus. A Roman ruler doing their dirty work. For them, But at the very least, he is going to anger a portion of the Pharisees with his answer because they are divided on the topic. And so from this controversial question, we move to their corrupted command. And by using the word corrupted command, I'm not saying there's something wrong with the Old Testament. I'm saying there was something wrong in the way they understood and applied it. And so we want to examine how the Pharisees would have answered their own question And this is in response to Jesus directing them to the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, I do want to pause for a moment and make two points concerning how Jesus initially handles their question. He does so with a question of his own. What's that question? He says, what did Moses command you? So they ask this controversial question, and Jesus says, well, well, what did Moses say? Which is just another way of saying, what does the Scripture say? And so my first point I want to pause and make is this, that it is a foundational element of biblical interpretation that we compare Scripture with Scripture, that Scripture interprets Scripture. That is, especially when we have a difficult passage to understand, we need to go to other passages of Scripture that will highlight the subject for us. That's, in essence, what we've already done this morning. That's why I read Deuteronomy chapter 24, because we cannot understand Mark chapter 10 without knowing that the background is Deuteronomy 24. That's why you have those little references in your Bibles, those numbers that point you to other verses, so you can go to those other verses, which will shed light on the verse that you are studying. So, first of all, I'm reminding us that Scripture does indeed interpret Scripture, The second point I'd like to pause and make is that this is the crucial question, not just on this subject, though it is on this, but this is the crucial question on most any subject. What does the Scriptures say? That is a question that we are increasingly either not asking or not obeying when we do know the answer. For our topic this morning, we ask it in this way, what does God say about marriage and divorce? That is the key. And yet so many people, even professing Christians, are not asking these kinds of questions. Instead, in the midst of a difficult marriage, they are asking, don't I have a right to be happy? Well, how do I feel? Don't I have the right to do with my life what I want to do? Or perhaps we've slipped even further and concluded that we know what God says, we just don't care anymore. Maybe God doesn't have a right to speak to our contemporary culture, where we've gone far beyond what the design of marriage was intended to be, and therefore God's word about marriage in particular seems so archaic and out of date. That's what this culture is saying, is redefining marriage into ways that they please it to be. They are redefining it to dissolve it at will. But we as believers must continue to ask, what does the Bible say? What does God say about this topic or any other? And our goal in asking that question is to come up with the biblical answer rather than an emotional response based on our own experience. And that distinction is crucial, and yet it is so often elusive. Now, let's give these Pharisees a bit of a credit. We do expect them to know what the Scriptures say, and in fact, they do. And so they reference the Deuteronomy passage that I read just a few moments ago and acknowledge that Moses allowed for divorce with a certificate to be given by the husband to his wife. Now, you understand that there were no courts involved here. These were individual decisions. They did not go to a judge and get a ruling. They did not file motions. In fact, prior to this command by Moses, it appears a man could just say to his wife, I'm done, I want you to leave, and she would leave. There was no paperwork at all. And so Moses says, well, at least what we ought to do if this is going to happen is to give her a certificate. Therefore, that might hinder hasty divorces, and certainly it will give her some measure of protection so that everyone knows that she is legally or lawfully divorced, and now she can remarry. But what we don't often see in this passage, or in many others for that matter, is that Jesus is not only protecting the women of this culture in a male-dominated society, but He is elevating their status at the same time. And that is especially true when we come down to verse 11, which is truly a shocking statement not for the reason that you think so. It's actually a shocking statement because in that culture, a man could not commit adultery against his wife. You say, now, wait a minute. How is that possible? Was there no sexual immorality in those days? Of course there were. You read about it in Sunday school. So what do I mean when I say that a man could not commit sexual immorality against his, or adultery against his wife? It was such a male-dominated culture that when a man committed adultery, It was deemed to be against the husband of the woman with whom he had committed it. So it wasn't termed that he had committed adultery against his wife. It was against the man whose wife he had been with. And that's how dominant the male culture was. Now, the Pharisees were right, of course, in what they quoted, but they were wrong in their understanding of it. And that's why I'm saying this is a corrupt command. It's acknowledged here that Moses did give this command, but it was done, verse 5, because of the hardness of their heart. It was never meant to be the norm. It was not meant to be the ideal. And keep that in mind in just a moment when we come to the grounds for divorce. Because our mindset should not be, do I have grounds for divorce? Our mindset should be, what can I do to ensure that my marriage lives up to the priority that God has placed upon it when He ordained marriage in the first place, which leads to where we've been going toward all along, and that is the divine design of marriage. God has something to say about marriage because it is His idea and it is divinely designed. Jesus doesn't want to focus merely on the exceptions, those cases of divorce, those divorces that were allowed due to hardness of heart. He wants to focus on how God designed marriage in the first place, taking us back to the ideal rather than, than the reality that has been so destroyed by sin. And therefore, Jesus doesn't answer their question immediately, though He will do so later Instead, he answers by giving us the divine design of marriage, which is what I'm trying to focus on. He basically says, you guys are starting in the wrong place. You're talking about divorce, but what we need to go back to is the foundation. And so he goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. The first verse deals with God's creation of male and female. In the beginning, God created them male and female, a passage of Scripture that probably none of us thought would be argued in our lifetime. And this this very foundational statement in God's Word is now no longer believed by our culture. And increasingly, we're struggling with it in the church as well. The second passage in Genesis chapter 2 is that famous passage that if you've been to a Christian wedding, you've heard that a man must leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. The leave and cleave passage, he leaves the primary relationship that he's had with his parents for all of his life, and he is united to his wife. That now becomes his primary relationship, humanly speaking, and therefore they become one flesh, speaking of the intimacy that is to be found in marriage. His point is that the original principle must take priority over the provisions that were later given for divorce. Yes, Moses did allow this with a certificate, but don't forget how God designed this from the very beginning. So even if you do have grounds for a biblical divorce, such a divorce is never commanded. The ideal and priority is the maintaining of your marriage, not the dissolving of it. Moses did not command divorce, which the Pharisees seemed to imply. Rather, he said that a certificate should be given when the man is intent on doing that, as we've already seen. In fact, that passage that I read for you might have seemed a bit odd and hard to follow, but it's basically about what happens after the divorce that's the focus of that passage. He says, if the wife that you divorce, if she goes and marries someone else then that person dies or divorces her. She cannot come back to her first husband. That's, that's the focal point of that particular passage. So it was a concession, a concession because of sin. It was never the intention of God. It was an attempt to limit the effects of human sinfulness, not give away people a way out. And Jesus' is intent on focusing on God's will for marriage, not debating the exception clauses. All of this to remind us that marriage was God's idea. It was instituted by God's authority all the way back at creation, and therefore it is a sacred institution that is not to be severed. And we also see the sacredness in marriage, not just in going back to creation, but also in thinking about recreation. And by that I mean the gospel. That famous passage in Ephesians. That again, we often hear at marriages, we heard it yesterday, talking about the husband and wife's responsibility, wives submit unto your husband. That's that's often the thing we focus on because that's that's a bad word. But then it goes on to talk about husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church. But here's the thing we often forget at the very end of that passage, that we often apply only to a marriage. At the very end of that passage, Paul says, this is a mystery but I'm not even talking about marriage. He says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's using marriage as a picture of the relationship that God in Christ has with the church. Now, that doesn't mean it does not apply to marriage. It certainly does. But let us not miss the picture. The picture is he's taking marriage, my relationship with my wife and your relationship with your spouse, and he's saying this marriage is to be a picture of the relationship that Christ has with his bride, which is the church. What kind of picture is your marriage painting Now, we know that Christ is not going to desert His church, and therefore we should not desert our brides. Very few couples consciously think about what kind of picture their marriage is painting when it comes to the gospel. Instead, most of us, even within the church, are more concerned about our rights, about our happiness, about our pleasure, than we are showcasing Christ to a world through our marital relationship. Marriage is not just a contract between a man and a woman. It is not just a commitment to live together as long as they are mutually happy. Marriage is a contract between a man and a woman and their God. Marriage is a place where discipleship is to be lived out where God is conforming us to His image as He transforms us by His Spirit, and in this most important of human relationships that we call marriage, discipleship ought to be evident. Now, with that as our priority, hopefully firmly in our minds, I do want to talk briefly about grounds for divorce, which is the essence of the question that they asked. Again, Jesus makes very clear that the ideal is one man with one woman for one life, but there is an exception. Mark actually doesn't give it for us. Matthew does, which is another example of how we need to compare Scripture with Scripture. Not only the parallel passage in Matthew, but other teaching on divorce as well. Matthew adds, Jesus saying, unless someone has committed sexual immorality... That's the way it's worded there. That word is very broad, leaving it open to several possibilities. Some people take that to mean that when a man marries a woman, if he finds out after the marriage that she had committed some sexual immorality prior to the marriage that he didn't know about, he now has grounds for divorce. That's essentially what Joseph wanted to do. You remember that? Joseph finds out that his wife, Mary, who he's engaged to, he's not yet married to her, but he's engaged to her and she's pregnant. And he, of course, assumes the natural reason for that and he is going to divorce her. Of course, you know the rest of the story and he does not. The other interpretation is, the majority opinion I think still holds this, that it pertains to sexual immorality after marriage. And infidelity is still one of the major causes of divorce. One of the spouses having an inappropriate relationship with another person. These things often beginning innocently enough, but somewhere along the way cross the line from friendship to relationship, and in the process, most people do not believe they will get caught, and yet they eventually do, and it can happen to any of us, which is why we must be on our guard. But again, even this doesn't spell the end of the marriage, or at least it doesn't have to. If we reference the parallel passage in Matthew once again, the previous section just before this story in Matthew is another story that has a bearing on this. That other story is when Peter comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, "'How many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Shall I do it seven times,' which was the standard teaching of the day, and deemed to be extremely generous?' Jesus answers Peter by saying, I say unto you not seven times, but 70 times seven, which does not mean that you calculate that out and keep a mark of how many times you've forgiven somebody. What that means is Jesus Jesus is saying, you just keep on forgiving. There is no end to forgiveness. So even if a spouse has committed sexual immorality that does not have to spell the end of the marriage, forgiveness is to come into play there. Now, I know that's very difficult. I am not saying that's an easy thing to do. And I also remind you that there is a difference, a huge difference between forgiveness and trust. But rather than looking for grounds for divorce, we should be striving to exercise forgiveness on a regular basis. Of course, Jesus is not being exhaustive in this dialogue. And so the question for us is, are there other grounds for divorce? Are there other places in the Bible that speak about the possibility of divorces for other reasons other than sexual immorality? And the answer is yes. We can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's a passage where Paul is dealing with a a group of various relationships, of course including marriage. And in that passage, he talks about a couple that is what he calls unequally yoked, that is a believer married to an unbeliever. So he says, in the case of a marriage between one person who is a follower of Christ and one person who is not, if the unbelieving spouse decides to leave, then the believing spouse that is left behind is free to remarry. It's a biblical grounds for divorce. However, the believing spouse does not have that same option. It is only the unbelieving spouse who can walk away leaving the believing spouse behind with a biblical divorce. Some people then go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it is, that great passage where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And they take that verse to mean that a biblical grounds for divorce and therefore remarriage is a divorce that happened prior to salvation. That is, if you were divorced prior to coming to faith in Christ, then you are free to remarry. Of course, in our day and age, we need to acknowledge that sometimes divorce is indeed the lesser of two evils. Domestic violence and abuse is more common than we care to admit or even understand. And if the safety of a wife or her children is an issue, then divorce might be the final solution that is necessary, though again, this ought to be seen as a last resort. So there are grounds for a biblical divorce Though if you came looking for that, you are already headed in the wrong direction and focused on the wrong things. Until a divorce is final, in fact, that's not even true, until your spouse marries someone else, it is not too late for God to change you and them and your marriage. I well remember many, many years ago, it was our first church, and I heard on a Sunday afternoon that two people in our church were having an affair with each other and now it had reached the point where they were both about to leave their spouse for each other. It was the first I'd heard of it. So that night after church, I went over to the man's house to talk to him about it and I stood in his driveway for a very long time urging him to change his mind, urging him to repent of his sin and remain with his wife and I well remember he kept repeating the same phrase to me over and over again. He kept saying, it's too late it's too late. And I kept telling him, it's not too late. Nobody has gotten a divorce. Nobody has married anybody else. It's not too late. But he wouldn't listen to me. And both of them went ahead with a divorce and married each other. Now, I realize that the standards for a Christian marriage are high and hard. The disciples understood that as well. Again, if you, if you go to Matthew's rendering of this, the disciples asked, well, well who then ought to be married? I mean, this is so difficult, maybe nobody should get married. When the disciples uh, have yet another chance to ask Jesus alone in a house, they do that. Verses 11 and 12, they are alone with Him, and they want more information. And His response might be what troubles us the most. If your divorce was not on biblical grounds and you marry someone else, He says, you are committing adultery. Why? Why? because God still sees the validity of your first marriage. Now, that does not mean that you become a habitual adulterer. And I also want to say that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. We've already talked about this way back in chapter 3, where we dealt with that issue of the unpardonable sin, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And before that statement, Mark chapter 3 says, all sin will be forgiven you except... The unpardonable sin. Therefore, divorce obviously can be forgiven. I'm not saying that to make it easy on you to get out, but I am saying that to try to soothe the guilt of something that has already happened. I am not here to shame you for a divorce. I am not here to swell you with pride if you haven't gotten a divorce. Both of those reactions would be wrong, But I am here to tell you that if you've gotten a divorce on unbiblical grounds, you can find forgiveness. God will forgive you if you repent and seek His forgiveness, and then I would encourage you to keep following Christ. And certainly two wrongs do not make a right. Nobody is urging you now to divorce who you are with and strive to go back to who you were with before. That would be unbiblical as well. God can redeem those past mistakes and give you a healthy marriage in the present. Whatever marriage you are on, he is always willing to begin again wherever we are when we turn to him. Now, I realize that divorce is a sensitive subject, which is why I don't deal with it very often. It's one of the benefits of preaching through a book of the Bible. It forces us to deal with something that we probably wouldn't deal with anyway. And it lets you know that I'm not picking this topic, but because I heard something about you this week, I'm picking this topic because we're in Mark chapter 10, and last week I was in chapter nine, and I've got no choice. So it's not something I enjoy talking about either. But here's the key: kingdom living comes with different standards. You might look around at your friends who are either not believers or at least only nominal believers and they seem to be happier now that they have gotten a divorce and maybe they are remarried and maybe they are. But our standards are not our friends. Our standard is God's Word and that has always been the case And I only bring this up because I don't want you and your family to suffer the consequences of a broken home. There are far too many of them already, and I don't want yours or mine to become another one. So I'm urging all of us to commit by God's grace to work on our marriage. If you are married, whatever number that might be, I am encouraging you to work on that marriage. Let's commit ourselves to what is intended by God. His divine design for marriage, rather than looking for exceptions, rather than trying to find a way out, let's remain committed to staying in, and that includes what you might consider to be a marriage that is not bringing you happiness. Number one, God can change that. You may not be happy now, but God is in the business of transforming people when they turn to Him, and God can change you, and God can change your, your spouse So that down the road you might find happiness again. But secondly, happiness is not our main goal in life, holiness is. And holiness dictates that we follow the standards of God, painting a picture for a watching world of the relationship between Christ and his bride. Remember, marriage is not just an agreement between a man and a woman. Marriage by design is a good gift given by a great God for our sanctification and our enjoyment. And we need to remember that. Let me pray.